Welcome to Crime Corner, where we examine all things crime, whether it be on the page, on the screen, on the street, or in the courtroom. I'm Matt Coyle, author of the Rick Cahill Crime Series, and I'll be your host for as long as it takes. My guest today, usually tonight, but today, is USA Today and number one and Denver Post number one best-selling author Carter Wilson. He's written six critically acclaimed standalone thrillers as well as numerous short stories. He's an ITW Thriller Award finalist, a two-time winner of the Colorado Book Award, and his novels have received multiple starred reviews from Publishers Weekly, Book Loose, Book List rather, and Library Journal, the big three. His sixth novel, The Dead Girl in 2A, just came out this week. Carter's writing career began on a spring day in 2003 when an exercise to ward off boredom during a continuing education class, which I'm sure there's a lot of boredom, evolved into a 400-page manuscript. Since that day, he has been constantly writing. He currently lives outside Boulder in a Victorian house that is spooky but not haunted yet. Welcome, Carter Wilson. Welcome, Carter Wilson. Oh, can you? Can you? Yes. I, you know, uh, I forgot to take you off on mute. Once well, again, technical difficulty. This time, my fault. <laughs> Thanks for having me on, Matt. You bet. I, I appreciate you uh, hanging around. As the last technical difficulty, which is actually for a change, nothing I had nothing to do with, but um, and we still don't know what happened, <laughs> which is exciting for whenever it could happen again. But anyway, exactly. Thanks for coming on this holiday weekend, and tell uh, this. The book is fresh off the press. Tell us a little bit about the girl, the dead girl in two A. Yeah, well, thanks for the opportunity, and yeah, it just came out on Tuesday, so I'm pretty excited to kind of see it out there. Um, that's always a good feeling. But uh, you know, it's uh, I write standalone uh, psychological thrillers, and um, this one is like the others, completely unrelated to anything I've, I've written before, and. You know, like with my other books, it all just kind of starts out with an opening scene that I think of, and I have no idea where it's going from there. And I wrote a scene about two people meeting on a plane, and they sit next to each other, and they're just viscerally convinced that they know each other. They each have that feeling, even by smell. They have this sense that they're somehow linked, and they spend the entire flight trying to figure out what they have in common. And really the main thing they find out that they do have in common is neither of them have any memories of their childhood before about the age of 10. And as the plane's landing, the woman confesses to the man that she's actually going to her destination in Colorado to kill herself, and she disappears into the airport. Uh, and so essentially the story is what happens after they get off that plane. That's what you call a hook. <laughs> I hope so. So I read something you said about your father on your website that leads me to believe uh, this in some ways is a very personal book for you, was it? Yeah, it is a very personal book for me. I, my, my father passed away at the age of 69, actually uh, 10 years ago this year, uh, from early onset, you know, complications from early onset Alzheimer's. Um, and, you know, that was a real anomaly in our family. His mom lived to be 103. Um, wow. So dealing with that was a struggle. And as I kind of look back over my writing career, I see that kind of the thread of memory, had, you know, appears throughout my different books in one form or another. And, and when I sat down to write The Dead Girl in 2A, I, w I was very cognizant that I wanted to fully embrace the idea of memory head on and really just kind of have that be a strong theme uh, for you know, in, in, in the good sense and the bad sense throughout this book. Um, so that was 
that was something that was important to me uh, to do. And you know, because memory is memory is beautiful and memory is frightening, and and, and kind of the duality of that, um, I think, makes for a compelling story because we can all relate to that. Well, it is. It's a very compelling story. And uh, obviously, memory can be fleeting, but it can also be wrong. Um, right. So I don't want to get, I don't want to have to delve too much into, you know, you're grieving your father. But so it's been ten years, and memories always played a part in some ways in your books. Why did why why write why write this book now? Do you have do you have an answer for that? Yeah, I don't think I don't know if I do have an answer for that actually because I, it's funny, you know, I don't I don't sit here and think about like, oh, it's been ten years. What's been happening actually is I've been finding myself grieving more than than actually I ever have, um, mm. and it's just been occurring to me like, oh my God, it's been ten years, and I don't know if that's just coincidental, but it's uh, it's been actually a very strange past few months. But I think in the yeah, as I started writing this book. Yeah, what, I wasn't cognizantly trying to set out and say this is a, a, a and you know I'm honoring my father by writing this book. It was more that you know I, I think there's something about you know, my own fear of losing memory. Uh, you know, after witnessing you know my father going through that, you know the yeah. horror that kind of seeps into your own bones about that, and and then just there's something about that you know you can't escape your own mind. Um, and and to me that is the most frightening aspect of human nature is that no matter what things happen to you, you know if there's something in your mind you're you're you're, you're trapped within it. Um, and so I, I I wanted that to be, you know I write a lot I write a lot of paranoia and you know the the height of paranoia is always interlaced with with memory and and real and and judgment of reality. So I really wanted that to be present in this book because I wanted to. You know, have kind of that that fear come out a little bit. Well, it certainly does. So <laughs> you talked about having a scene. Um, you know, a scene comes to you, and the story comes from there. So let me ask you about Jake and Clara, the two protagonists. Where Jake's a little bit, you know, the protagonist A. But did their characters come from the necessity of telling the story, or did the story come from the, them? That makes sense. I, it's very writerly. Yeah, question. no, yeah, it does make sense. Um, you needed to have the two characters, right? Uh, whether they were a man and a woman weren't necessarily in the forefront of my mind, but um, I was. I, I needed to have two strangers. Um, and as I started thinking more about it, and in fact, I wrote that opening scene. I just had them on the plane, um, and I didn't even have necessarily the part about the memory in there, and. And then towards the end of the scene, you know, one of the things I do when I write is I'm continuously asking myself, well, what if, what if this happens, what if that happens, because I don't outline, and so that's how I create my stories, just kind of throwing those things in there. I'm like, so then it was, well, what if she's going to kill herself? And then I thought, what if her point of view is completely told from a prolonged suicide note that she's writing in progress throughout the book? Um, and so that then it became, okay, I need to have these two points of view if I'm going to show it this way. Um, and so essentially she's documenting, you know, her goal is to write down 
everything she can remember, the highlights of her life, and she's working back from present day, from meeting Jake on the plane, back to her earliest memory. And once she gets to the point of reaching her earliest memory, that's when she's going to kill herself. So when I kind of figured that out, then I'm like, okay, I've got a lot of material to work with here. <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned point of view because that was what I was going to ask you about next. You have, you really have, um, you have multiple points of view in the story. Um, you have two first person. You've got Jake, and then you do have um, uh, Clara in her suicide notes in first person. But you also have third person looking at both those characters, which I thought it was very effective, and, and you know, it, it really works for the story, but. Um, did that sort of evolve from the characters themselves, or did you have an idea? Oh, this is the way. I, this is the only way I can tell the story. Yeah, that's a great question. It was. I struggled with that actually because I, you know, I I prefer to keep things as simple as possible, and this story ended up being kind of anything but. And so it was just those two um, tenses, uh, points of view. And then at one point I just realized, like, if I'm going to keep telling Claire's story, it's got to shift away from this um, suicide note. And But then there was something very compelling about that because then we got to see her first-person present tense point of view, which was different than how she wrote. It was much more – it was more frantic. It was So I thought it was a little bit more – um, yeah, picked up the pace a little bit. And then when I shifted, and it's funny, like I didn't have his third person point of view um, until, you know, I was going through edits with my uh, publisher and they wanted to see more of him at his home. Um, so then I layered in all that in a different, different tense. And I thought and it ended up working well, but yeah, it's always a danger, right? When you have, all those different structures going on that you don't want to confuse the reader and you don't want the voices to start to mix together too much. So, um, so I'm, yeah, I'm glad it resonated with you. Yeah, it, it, it worked. Um, it worked perfectly for the story and, uh, there was no confusion. I have to alert my uh, Facebook friends that Angus has joined the conversation. He's now in the office with me. So oh, he's great. not on the couch upside down. <laughs> Um, so this is a. This, there's a lot going on in this book, and uh, which completely fascinates me that you don't outline. But I, I, uh, I like it because I don't outline either. But but to, have to put a book this um, this much going on together without having an outline must have been fun. But 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 the question I have now for you is where the idea of the, there's a book within the book in this book called the responsibility yeah. of death, and uh, I got a couple questions. Where did it come from, and was it hard to have your publisher put illustrations – not many, but put illustrations in the real book? Right. Uh, yeah. It was – so one of the hooks of the book is that, um, uh, is, as you mentioned, there's this children's book, this kind of hypnotic children's book um, called The Responsibility of Death. And I, I wanted some psychological element in there um, that had some kind of visual – stimuli mm-hmm. and so and and I just kind of immediately thought of like how creepy would it be to have a children's book that's super dark and um, almost uh, you can't even interpret what it's about and there's several copies and all the copies are different and what if it was all intricately drawn and it would just and there were no words in some of them and it just said the responsibility of death on the cover that's kind of how I started with the idea 
And then, you know, when I thought of that, it just creeped me out. And so I'm like, all right, if it's creeping me out, it's probably going to be effective because uh, it's just going to seem weird and, and powerful. And so I, you know, as I was writing this and I was describing these scenes in, in, in these children's books, I reached out to this um, uh, art student uh, who at, at NYU and I, and I paid her. I said, hey, if I, here's the description of one of these pages. Can you draw this? And so she did. I'm like, that's great. So actually, when I submitted my uh, manuscript, I submitted it with all the illustrations. Um, so I never asked them, like, hey, you know, if I did this, will you do this? I wanted them to see it for the first time as they're reading the book. So I layered it in, in the actual, you know, 8.5 by 11 manuscript. Right. And, yeah, it re it's funny. Then they, they didn't really say anything about it. And then finally, as it was getting close to, you know, publication time i kind of said well can we do this like oh yeah we're including those <laughs> i'm like oh that's Fantastic. great I, I i i didn't know i had never done that before i thought maybe it was going to be a big fight you know more cost yeah. to do this i didn't know so but yeah they were super cool about it so i was very excited and like you said i didn't do too many but i wanted to have enough where a reader kind of was going by and they're like wait is this real i really wanted to have that effect yeah they're, they're effective um so the illustrations that made the book were they, were they this art students from NYU? Yeah, they? yeah, wow. yeah, exactly. So, and and the the publisher actually printed out posters um, for swag. So I have I have some of those, and they're, I mean, I don't know if it's something you'd want hanging in your house because they're just kind of creepy, but but creepy. I love them. <laughs> See it on a T-shirt. Um, yeah, yeah, totally. So I'm guessing the art students uh, making more money on the book than you are. Yeah, probably. Yeah. <laughs> so I have to send her a copy. Actually, she. Um, yeah, I made sure she got credited, and uh, and I'll I'll send her a copy. I'm sure she's long since forgotten about it. Well, she's famous now. All right. So I was reading <laughs> yeah. your blog, one of your blogs, and uh, you wrote something very interesting and uh, kind of resonated with me. You wrote that you think storytelling is 20% idea and 80% mood, and uh, what you set out to do when you write a story is that you never have a fully formed vision of what the plot will be, but you know how the story, how you want the story to feel. How long does it take you to find that mood for each book? Because I imagine there's this, you don't just sit down and the mood comes to you, or maybe it does. And how long when you're writing, when you start each day, does it take to get to find that mood? Yeah, it's, it doesn't take me long. You know, I'm very, I'm, I'm very, uh, I don't know, segmented, I guess, as a writer. I don't think about my stories most of the day. Um, when I, 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 I try to write once or twice a day, and when I sit down, I can just kind of turn it on and get, you know, headphones on. I'm usually listening to thunderstorms uh, when I write, and I can get into that world very quickly, and I can get out of it very quickly. Um, and then again, I go through the rest of my day without really much thinking about it. So, um, most of the moods, you know, I write psychological thrillers, you know, definitely on the dark side. So a lot of my moods are menacing. Um, so it, it's, it's whatever degree of menacing that I want to have. Um, but I would say, like, you know, with Dead Girl in 2A, <laughs> despite the title, it's probably, in my mind, I, I wanted it to be more more, more of an emotional book, more of a book about um, kind of about hope and um, you know the power of life and not quite so menacing even though I know there's a lot of menacing elements about it but 
And I can tell if I start feeling emotional when I'm writing, I can tell that I'm striking the chord that I want to strike. Um, so, and if, and if I can get into that mood and if I can kind of feel that atmosphere, then usually the plot comes along relatively quickly after that. Well, it's, um, you talk about hope, but it is a, uh, it's an internal, it's an internal struggle story for sure, which all good stories are. Um, so, does the mood have you ever had a book where you've got this mood idea has it ever changed as you got more involved with the story yeah it always does i feel like it always i feel like it always starts out darker than it ultimately becomes because um, it's usually about two-thirds of the way sometimes three-quarters of the way down into the book that it hits me my god this is what this book is about this is the thing that i've been dodging the whole time this this book is you know um you know in one in one case a book was i realized the book was about saving people everybody trying to save each everybody else and i'm like and it hit me like three quarters of the way through and then when when you realize that that kind of affects how you approach things to begin with right so you go back and rewrite to kind of shift right. that mood a little bit because you might not want it to be as dark or as you know uh, despairing as maybe you had initially set it out to uh, to be. So yeah, I, I feel like things constantly shift, and that's the struggle, as you know, without when you're not outlining, is that you can become inconsistent very quickly, and you have to kind of step back and kind of reevaluate the work and say, okay, what is what is it that I'm trying to say here, and am I kind of going off topic or going out of mood in order to do that and do I need to readjust so you know lots of lots of rewrites lots of input from the editor uh, this one in particular probably the hardest book I've ever written because it became so intricate and then the edits were pretty tremendous <laughs> uh, and you know when I was done with it I was exhausted I just like it, you know I need I need to write something straightforward next <laughs> probably won't happen though um, is it funny how? Is it funny how the? Because uh, it sounds like it sounds like our writing process is kind of similar. Is it funny how much of the subconscious uh, gets involved? Where, like you said, because I, when I start writing a book, I don't think about theme, but generally one emerges, and like you said, you, you, you don't really know until you're two thirds of the way in. And then I think that's the freedom right. of not outlining. Yeah, and I think I mean I can't outline. I've tried it, and I, and I, I definitely have moments where I'm like, okay, I know these ten things need to happen by the end of the book. Right. Um, how, however, they I, I'll know things like that, but yeah, I if I stop and start thinking early on about like, okay, what's the character's arc? How are they going to change by the end? All those things that you're supposed to be doing, it overwhelms me, and and mm-hmm. I don't know the answers to it, and I get scared and. But now I've written enough where I'm like, okay, I trust my subconscious, and I, and I right. trust that something will emerge that will make sense, and I know I'll be cutting a lot of things out. I'll be writing the entire scenes that I know aren't going to make it. Um, but ultimately, I have confidence in myself to, to, to say, okay, yeah, thematically, this is going to make sense. Um, and, you know, theme is also left up to interpretation. Sometimes I'll see a theme in my book. That I don't know if anybody else does, but to me, that's what the book is about. And if I tell that to somebody, then they might be surprised because they saw it entirely differently, and that's okay too. All right. I feel like I'm talking to myself, although maybe uh, <laughs> maybe on a little higher level of talent because their writing process is really similar. Um, so 
with the last question on the mood thing. So is that the reason, you know, having to have a certain mood, and I completely understand it, for each story, is that is that why you've chosen to write standalones instead of um, a series or two? I think so. I think it's also kind of the creative freedom. I mean, and I have, I have certainly nothing against series, and, and I'm sure I would be financially better off if I <laughs> wrote series. I'd um, be surprised. And... <laughs> I just I, I want the well first of all I love to just explore and world build right so I, I I typically don't write about places I don't this isn't a hard fast rule but I typically don't write about places I'm familiar with like I'm going to choose a new place or I'm going to make up a place and I'm going to uh, build this world and I'm going to build these characters because they're new and they're exciting that's usually why I I write standalones because I just want to I want to see different stories um, and I also don't want to have to keep everybody alive you know i want to be able to like you know i'm going to kill this person off um and that excites me um and i don't always have happy endings and and that that's something to me that that i kind of cling towards but um but again i'm I'm definitely not against writing series i i'm more kind of intrigued with what i'm writing something now that I, i i just finished another book and then i'm kind of picking up something from the same location but an entirely different set of people. Um, so almost like, you know, when you watch like Fargo, how they, the show, the TV show Fargo, yeah. it's called Fargo, but every season is a completely new uh, cast and, or true detective yeah. the same way. I kind of like that idea that there's some, some uh, interwoven relationships or settings, but, but not a direct overlap. So when you're writing about a different place, do you, I mean, not one you've made up, but an actual city, do you try to go to the city? Uh, yeah, typically I did. I mean, I probably the best example of that, um, because I just almost randomly picked it on a map was, um, Manchester, New Hampshire, the setting for Mr. Tender's girl. Um, and yeah, so I went there for three days and just walked the streets and just got a feel for it. And, um, that was fantastic. I mean, I don't think it was critical that I did that. Um, but it was definitely helpful. Yeah, it's it's sometimes you can pick up. Uh, I mean, for I cheat. I I write the city that I live. Although I just did write a book that took place in a different city, and that was really difficult for me because I couldn't get out and just drive around and, and get you know look at areas that I wanted to. Um, right. <clears throat> all right. I, I was going to touch on your uh, lack of outlining, but we sort of already talked about that. Have you ever studied psychology? I haven't. I mean, not aside from, you know, Psych 101 in, in college. Um, but I feel like, you know, when you're writing things that kind of go, go to the, the, the heart of <laughs> psychoanalysis, you know, it's, right. it's so much you can glean off of what you've read over the course of your life, the shows that you've watched that's resonated with you. And to me, it's all about, which is why I like writing um, – which I, I prefer to write first person present tense is I want to see the world through somebody's eyes, like mm-hmm. as it's happening. And I want to empathize with that person because I want to know what would I do in this situation? Um, that to me is the most exciting thing is taking somebody and just throwing, throwing shit at them and say, okay, now what are you going to do? Uh, yeah. Because I me- I immediately take on that role of I'm this person whether it's a female character or a male character or whomever, 
I want them to be relatable in terms of, you know, that, cause I think that's where the, that's where the real tension comes from. Um, and the real kind of psychological, you know, uh, voodoo that you can do with a character. Yeah. He certainly throws some sh- shit at, uh, Jake in, in, uh, this book and he, um, has some surprising reactions sometimes. One in particular I'm thinking of. Uh, okay. So, do you do you still have a day job? I do. Yeah, I actually run a consultancy uh, for the hospitality industry um, huh? uh, here in uh, Denver. So I've been I've been working in the uh, hotel industry for you know 30, 30 years. So yep, wow. yep. As you know, it's uh, and I love it. So it's not like I'm you know dying to get out of there actually I, I, I adore my job um, but it's yeah it's it's not easy to make uh, sustainable income uh, writing as as, as 99.8 percent of us know right. uh, so I just uh, this struck me when I saw when Bouchercon was and I knew I was interviewing you I went to the uh, their website and checked attendees and you're going to Bouchercon this year in, in Dallas correct Yes, I am. I'll be there. I, I had a real struggle with that because it's over right. Halloween. Because so I had to get. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm a big Halloween guy, so I actually emailed my publisher and said, "Hey, this is this is kind of worrisome to me. Uh, do you need me there?" And they actually said, "Hey, if you come the two days after I had the the first and the second, that works perfectly." So, um, so yeah, I'm flying out on the first because I just <laughs> it would it would it would wreak havoc on on in my neighborhood if 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 I wasn't here for Halloween. Or it might wreak, it may wreak less havoc on your neighborhood if you weren't there for Halloween. That's true. That's true. I, God, God forbid I ever sell this house because, uh, you know. So basically, for the listeners, I've I've got a Victorian house and uh, it's it's you know very loosely modeled after the Adams family home, um, <laughs> and I I do a big I cover the porch in burlap every year. And I have motion sensors, animatronics that I build, things that jump out, and there's always a theme. And you know we get three to four hundred trick or treaters, um, and I always have a big party as well. So it's it's a big deal, and I I have hidden cameras out there, so I put together a highlight reel of screams every year. So yeah, it's it's it, the whole neighborhood is very into Halloween. So it's it, the whole neighborhood is Victorian houses, and and people really get into it. So people are busing their kids in from other neighborhoods to come to this neighborhood. Well, nothing says haunted like a Victorian house. Oh, it's great. Yeah, I've got the kind of the iron spiked cresting on the roof. And, yeah, my full display, I mean, my year-round display, I've got bats on the front porch. i got a big Jack Skellington model. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a year-round Halloween house. So I imagine that you are in costume every year. Yes. And yeah. does it change? I mean, or I the is, oh, no, I can't repeat. This is like my standalone novel thing. I can't. <laughs> Uh, it's just, and it, 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 it by July if I if I don't which I don't have a theme yet this year but usually in July when I don't have a theme I actually will start having dreams, <laughs> panic dreams about it'll be you know 7 p.m. and kids are walking down the street and I haven't done anything up to my house yet this is a, this is an actual recurring dream, and I just start panicking so you know yeah, but I I don't want to repeat because you know I've got people who you know. So I've done The Shining. I've done. I, I look at actually the top ten phobias. I usually do pick those, and do kind of go through that. Um, so there's always something. Now I've got a collection of of Halloween crap that I don't u- reuse very often. 
Yeah, heaven forbid if you uh, repeated a character you did 15 years ago and a neighbor called you on it. <laughs> well, the best are the little kids who like will actually like you know tell you like you know you really stepped it up this year. I really appreciate your efforts. I'm like, wow, thank you. <laughs> that's, that's the best I get. And now it's funny. My kids don't even want to go trick or treating. They want to hand out candy because the best thing in the world is to actually hear the screams on the other side of the door. We actually count the number of people, and then we count the number of people who cry. Uh, we have a little <laughs> notepad by the door, <laughs> so we track we track the data year over year. I can see why you write psychological thrillers. You're frightening the <laughs> children in your neighborhood. Probably lasting damage. Um, Hopefully. So you're. Book just came out Tuesday. I was going to have you on last Friday, but we had a, gl- a glitch, and I appreciate you coming back. So, are you touring? Uh, yeah, I have a small tour, mostly here in Colorado, and I'm headed to Houston and potentially uh, Madison, Wisconsin, as well. And then I'll be at uh, Thriller Fest uh, New York City uh, next week. Oh, that's right, Thriller Fest. Uh, and, and is uh, your last book? Your last book is up for a Thriller Award this year, right? Yeah, Mr. Tenor's Girl is up for um, Best Original Paperback for um, an ITW Thriller Award. Yeah, that was like, you know, for all we do as writers, you, you know, there's nothing that's, uh, there, or I should say there's a little more affirming than um, respect from colleagues, right? So that's, that's I, I feel like a lot of us write for each other, um, and if we get kind of props from each other, that's 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 what we need. <laughs> And so getting nominated to me was like that was a real pinnacle um, of my 16-year cool. writing career. So I was, I'm, I'm very excited about that. Well, we're not doing it for the money, that's for sure. <laughs> no, we like to think so. If you ever – if you, I always say this to, to you know, potential writers or writers who are asking for advice. I'm like, just you – know, if you think you're going to make money, I think that's okay. You know, I think it's great to think about that. Um, but don't quit your day job. Learn how to learn how to fit it into your life. That's the biggest right. thing. Is like there's 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 no such thing as there's not enough time. I think you'll you'll if you want to write, you'll find a way to write, and and uh, right. you know the the money will hopefully follow. It does writing with a day job does make you disciplined for sure. And having uh, quit my day job at the end of uh, last year um, because I like poverty, um, that did that <laughs> um, that focus is, is certainly helped so you said you finished your next book can you talk about a little bit if you want to what it's about yeah and it's and the you know the 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 other part of not writing series is i i sell my books one at a time so i haven't i haven't even shown this to my my pop i haven't shown it to my agent yet it's still right at the final edits but you know, kind of with the idea that I just think of something and, and yeah, I just go from there. I, for whatever reason, I just wanted to write about sisters. I'm like, I want to write about two sisters, um, and I don't know anything about them. Um, but the setup of the book is essentially that um, this uh, 37-year-old woman with an 11-year-old son, she's married. The husband dies from an overdose of sleep medication and alcohol, and she's a mystery writer, and they move back to where she grew up in uh, New Hampshire to a very dysfunctional and very wealthy father uh, and sister who still live there. And the woman starts getting investigated about her husband's death because there was a scene in one of her books that was very similar. Mm. Um, but the crux of the book delves deeper into the history of these two sisters and the father and what happened in their New Hampshire house 20 years earlier. 
Um, so it's a, it's very much a domestic thriller. Um, it's very, it's very dark. Um, much more kind of straightforward than than the Dead Girl in 2A, um, and I would probably say more menacing. But uh, I, I I loved writing it, and it's probably the fastest thing I've written since my first book. So that was I, I just kind of felt it all come out of me, which was great. That's a rare. That's going to be a rare and good feeling. Very rare, because the Dead Girl in 2A was 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 very painful. <laughs> it took me a long time to figure it all out. Well, it's a it's a very intriguing reading. I highly recommend it to the listeners. And I want to thank you again, Carter, for uh, sticking it out, the showing up this week after uh, we had some problems last week. Really appreciate it. And yeah, absolutely, my I will pleasure. see you in Dallas at Bouchercon the day after th- the day after Halloween. <laughs> Sounds good. Thanks for having me on, Matt. I really appreciate it. You bet. All right. Take care. You bet. All right. So uh, next week I'm going to have. Uh, Terry Shames on to discuss her latest book, A Risky Undertaking for Loretta Singletary, and hopefully I'll have her on and we don't have some other technical that I create or don't create. But I want to say uh, if you're in a book club and would like an author to answer questions and yammer on about his work, I'd love to talk to you. You can find my email address on my website, maccoilbooks.com. This is a copyrighted trademark podcast owned slowly, solely by the authors on the air. Global Radio Network. I will see you not in two weeks, but next week. Thanks for listening.